1 Peter 3, if you're our guest this morning, we didn't just kind of parachute in and land on this. We've been working through 1 Peter together, and this is naturally where we're at in the text. So I'm going to ask you to open your scriptures to 1 Peter chapter 3. If you do not have a copy of the scriptures uh, in one form or another, uh, we invite you to turn to page 1015 in the Bible that's provided for you. Genuine followers of Christ, we have to make that distinction, genuine or authentic or true followers of Christ, because there are so many uh, fakes today that we have to say this is what is going to be true of someone who has confessed Christ as Lord and is following Him. Genuine followers of Christ are marked by obedience Humility and submission. That's not just for women or wives. Because Ephesians 5.21 says, Submitting yourselves, each one of you, to one another out of reverence for Christ. So a genuine follower is not marked by hearing or just knowing facts about God. Marked by doing and obeying. Marked by humility and Marked by obedience. Scripture tells us this about Jesus. It says he humbled himself. There's humility. By becoming obedient. There's the obedience. To the point of death. He submitted to the Father's will. Even Christ within the Godhead submitted himself to the Father's will. And this is how it turned out. Even, Paul writes in Philippians 2, even death on a cross. We're given a further glimpse of that in 1 Peter chapter 2. I'll have you look at 1 Peter 2.21. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. So the atonement, the gospel, is, is an incredible truth. But there's something even more going on where it says that He left us an example so that you might follow His steps. Now remember, when He was, when he was uh, rebuked and when He was slandered, how did He respond? He answered, you know, as a fellow guitar player, we need to, how did he respond? He answered not a word. Sometimes we develop a habit of having to defend ourselves or champion ourselves or debate or attack. Well, Jesus didn't do that. He could have called legions of angels, and yet He didn't. He showed humility and obedience and submission. And He did so by leaving, and He did so in leaving us an example. Now, we pick up our text in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. And it becomes very evident that Peter is in the middle of developing a very important and profound truth. And you're going to see the first word. What's the first word of 1 Peter chapter 3? Likewise. Okay, so, so the natural question is, like what? Because it's going to say the same thing for the husband. Likewise. So, like what? So, Peter is he's about to move into the Christian household, or at least into a household where one of the members is a believer, and he's going to expound the duties of each based upon previous teaching. I want you to look at 1 Peter 2, verse 11. This is where this likewise is going to fit in. He says in 1 Peter 2, verse 11, Beloved, 
I urge you as sojourners or pilgrims, as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And folks, we know that. We know that even this past week, don't we? So the Apostle comes and he's urging us to fight against the passions of the flesh which wage war against our soul. Verse 12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, when they try to undermine Christianity, when they try to despise openly you and the Lord you, you profess to follow, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the point and the goal of all apostolic instruction. So that we may be reconciled to God, and when people look at our lives, our honorable conduct, conduct, they may then be reconciled as well. This is what Peter's been hammering away at. Because of the Gospel, every relationship in life for the believer has changed. That's the section we're in. So let's just do a quick overview. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to tell you where he's getting at. Peter's going to say, in the world, chapter 2, verses 11 to 12, our general testimony is abstaining from the passions of the flesh and keeping our conduct honorable. That's our general testimony. He moves into chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, and he talks about not just being in the world, but he talks about being under government. So he moves from general testimony to our citizen testimony. And what does that look like? Submitting to and honoring rulers placed over us. Then he moves into this masters. We would be more familiar because we don't have house servants, but masters. We would even add employers. And this is the employment testimony. And what Peter writes to them is submitting and enduring suffering. Now he's going to move into the home. That's, that's our section this morning. Verse, chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. And this is the domestic testimony. Wives submitting and adorning inwardly, primarily. Husbands understanding and honoring the wife. Then he's going to move to an apologetic testimony. Among questioners, when they ask, he says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And then amidst persecution, he moves back to our general testimony in the world. Our general testimony as we suffer, suffer is again submitting and honoring. Now as we move into this section, we must, be, we must beware of a problem that exists. We're going we're to hear this passage in a, in a very particular Way and we might make applications that were never intended by Peter in this portion of Scripture. The reason we say this is because of the dominance of men throughout history and even today in most cultures. There is a patriarchal, hierarchical, male tendency to dominate. And we can read this and actually come away wrongly and selfishly in looking at this as permission to subjugate all women. And men, that is not what this text is teaching. This text is teaching that when the gospel enters a home, 
It changes the relational dynamic within that home, even if she is married to an unbelieving husband. Or even if he, perhaps, is married to an unbelieving wife. Let's look at the first portion. 1 Peter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Now, if you look at this, more space is given to the wife, six verses, than is given to the husband, one verse. Peter is different in that. There are five household code passages in the New Testament. Uh, Ephesians, heavy-sided on the man. You love your wife as Christ loved the church. This is what this love looks like. Okay, And he's going to expound that. And, and the weight of it is going to land on the husband. In some of the household code passages, there are ten words for the husband and ten words for the wife. But here you have this sort of this imbalance. And the question is, why? Why would he take so much time to address the wife here rather than the husband? And what it seems to be is these, these, these believers in Asia Minor, up in these Roman, these Greco-Roman provinces, have come under harsher treatment than the men. And so Peter is writing to them to encourage them. And they would have found encouragement and empowerment by what Peter writes. Karen Jobes wrote, quote, because the call to faith in Christ is a call for life-changing personal realignment, the conversion of either spouse in the Greco-Roman marriage held the potential for serious problems both between the couple and between the couple and society. Okay, well, let me give you a specific example. Plutarch writes, In Greco-Roman society, it was expected that the wife would have no friends of her own and would worship the gods of her husband. So is that clearer? So when Christianity enters, what is her responsibility? Well, first of all, be subject. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Notice it doesn't say, likewise, women, be subject to all men. It's very specific in the words it uses. Wives, be subject to who? Your own husband. Now, controversial terms like subject or submission need to be defined. And folks, our convictions have to be born out of Scripture. And those convictions are attached to the use of words. And those words are best understood in how those words are used in other places in Scripture. So we've got to understand the words rather than just say, oh, well, that was a cultural thing. You know, that's, that, that, no, that no longer matters to us. No, we can't do that. If God has chosen these words to be preserved for us, there must be a present-day application. The word itself, if you just look at the Greek word, it means to arrange under, to subordinate, to subject oneself to obey, to submit to one's control, or to yield to one's admonition or advice. That's, that's just what the word means. The word used for subject always implies a relationship of submission to authority. For example, 
It's used in Luke 2.51 of the submission of Jesus to the authority of his parents. So let me ask you a question. Was Jesus inferior to Mary and her husband Joseph? Well, that's absurd. Yet, we see him, what? Submitting to them as a God-ordained authority. It's used of demons being subject to the disciples. It's used of citizens being subject to government. It's used of the universe being subject to Christ. Of unseen spiritual powers being subject to Jesus. Of Christ being subject to God the Father. Of church members being subject to church leaders. Of wives being subject to their husbands. Of the church being subject to Christ. Of servants being subject to their masters. Of Christians being subject to God. And in every case, there is an appropriate aligning up underneath someone else. What's interesting is of all those relationships that I just worked through, none of them is reversed. Okay, so for instance, husbands are never told specifically to submit to their wives. The disciples are never told to submit to demons. Nowhere do we see the Father saying He has come to do the will of the Son, though they are equal. However, Ephesians 5.21 does say this, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So there is a sense, even in the home, where there is a mutual submission. But when it comes down to a decision-making point or an authority structure, Matter of fact, Paul will take it even before sin entered the world. So this submission is not an effect of sin. It is on the creation order. Paul's going to say, for he created Adam first, then Eve. This command, wives be subject to your husbands, should never be taken to imply inferior personhood or inferior spirituality or lesser importance. Peter's actually going to capture that. I want you to look at verse 7, chapter 3, where he says, Wives are heirs with you of the grace of life. There Peter is tempering and making sure that his, his exhortation is clear. They are heirs together with you. Well, why, why would this command be given to the wife? Look at the next portion. Look at, look at the latter part of verse 1, chapter 3. So that, there's your, there's your purpose statement. So wives, be subject. Align yourself underneath your husband, even if he's an unbelieving man. Align yourself, arrange yourself under him. So that, even if some do not obey the word... Now, now notice, it's not talking about only that situation. It's not talking about only in a marriage where the man is unbelieving, because he says even if some don't obey, implying that, no, this is, this is the normal setup in a home. This is how God designed it. But even if some don't obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Here's a situation where silence is the most effective means of communication. The believing wife's submission to an unbelieving husband 
has an evangelistic purpose. So that when he sees, not hears, when he sees her conduct, he pauses and he considers. Now the word, it's an interesting word. It refers to the men as for those who do not obey the word. It actually means not just to be unpersuaded and unbelieving, but he is, he is aggressively and assertively saying no to this. He is what is defined as a rebel. He is rebellious to the gospel. It's not just that he's never heard. He has seen it and he's saying no. Okay, so in that kind of contentious situation, here's what Peter says to wives. He does not say, get seven of your friends together and tell them how horrible your husband is under the guise of prayer request. Nor does he say, rally, rally a dozen men at the church and, and just go overwhelm him. What's the instruction? Look at it again. Wives, be subject to your husbands, to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by your conduct. Peter uses that word conduct in several places. Just look back at 1 Peter 2, verse 12. It's the same word, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may what? See your good deeds. Do you know, sometimes I wonder if we're not so busy debating and talking and fighting that we've left no room for somebody to simply observe and see in silence the transforming power of the gospel. Here Peter uses the word conduct for the gracious submission and Christ-like spirit of the wife to achieve what what the spoken word had failed to accomplish. Conduct defined by respect and purity. Do you know that? I mean, just pause here. And I think our young ladies need to hear this and be encouraged. Reverence and respect are attractive. Purity is attractive. Modesty of spirit internally and externally is attractive. And those alone have an effect for the gospel in the world and in the home. But just as those qualities have an effect, so do the qualities of loudness, disrespect, and stubbornness. They too have an effect. That's why I think the writer of Proverbs, one of the wisdom books, he says, it is better to live in a desert land than with a a quarrelsome and fretful woman. No amens, because you'll be in trouble. Right? So he says that. The same would be, you know, you you could basically mirror that proverb and say it would be better to live in a desert than with a dominant, unreasonable husband. There is something about the hidden person of the heart, the quietness of spirit, that is extremely attractive. Wayne Grudem states this, The unbelieving husband sees this behavior and deep within perceives the beauty of it. Within his heart there is a witness that is right. This is how God intended men and women to relate as husband and wife. So he concludes that the gospel which his wife believes must be true as well. Well, what does he see? What is he seeing? Look at, look at verse 3. Do not let your adorning be external. 
the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. Let's just pause right there. Okay, so, so he, he, he talks about gold jewelry. So does that mean that all jewelry is off limits? Does that mean, I mean, gold? I usually start seeing little shimmers of gold up here, right, around our necks and in our ear, in your ears. Okay, uh, so, so does that mean we can go reckless with silver, but gold is taboo, right? What about braiding of hair? What if, okay, what if I don't braid my... Okay, other hairstyles other than braiding, are those okay then? How can putting on clothes be wrong? The, the clothing you wear. And I, I'm, we're purposely, even with humor, trying to make a point that the text is making... These things are not off limits. We, those are actually encouraged. They just should not be your primary focus. Your primary focus on what makes you attractive to your husband or to other people should not be a fixation on external things. Do not let your adorning be external. That's the idea. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. And don't miss this, which in God's sight is very precious. Ladies, do you understand that when God sees you and He sees your heart, and your adorning is emphasized by the inner person. God takes delight in that. Well, let's make it personal. He takes delight in you. In His sight, this is very precious. Again, adorning refers to the focus of attention for one's attractiveness. It doesn't eliminate external adorning. It just says, give time to the adorning of the inner person of the heart. Something that the perfect hairstyle or jewelry or cosmetics cannot do. Those things are surfacy. They cannot touch the heart. Now, this makes sense. Peter's instruction, if we could just jump back into their culture a little bit, makes a lot of sense if, if, if an unbelieving husband's wife just accepted Christ, is calling him Lord and Savior, enters into a whole new religion, and say she goes out to one of the house meetings... When in, when in this culture she is expected to have no other friends except her husband's friends, and she is required to worship his gods. Now she's leaving to worship another god. It would appear scandalous if she was leaving the home without her husband, all dressed up, giving the appearance she's not going to worship her god but she's going out on the town. This removes the scandalous appearance. It removes the suspicion. And Peter's saying, as you, as daughters, he's going to say this, as daughters of Sarah, as born-again believers, let the emphasis be not on your external beauty, but on your internal beauty. Look at the highlight of proper adornment. He gives examples. So, so really, I mean, how do we learn from this? Look at verse 5. For this is how, 
Okay, you want examples. This is my instruction. This is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. And then what does he say? What's the adornment for the wife? What's the example of adornment from the Old Testament that Peter is now putting forward to his readers? By submitting to their own husbands. See, he doesn't just hit it and it disappears. He's actually saying there is an adornment, there is a beauty when your spirit aligns up under Him. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. Okay, specific example, verse 6. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. That's odd. Right? It's not how we, that's not how we interact. Right? Lord, would you like eggs this morning? Right? So, so what do we do? We read past this until we find something familiar, something applicable, without kind of drilling down and saying, what is he, what is he even saying? As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So if we need an example of what this looks like, Peter's going to take us back to the Old Testament. Now, Sarah's obedience is clear and commendable. She was not perfect. Remember the situation where the angels came in and perhaps the pre-incarnate appearance of Christ and they're under the tree and of course, by now, Sarah's womb is past the ability to give birth. And she hears the angelic visitors say, no, Sarah will have a son. And what does she do? L- apparently quite loud, right? Because they heard it. Or if it's a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, he knew it without having heard it, which would even be more mysterious. So she laughs. And then when she's called out on it, she says, what? I didn't. I didn't laugh. Okay, so not everything in Sarah's life is commendable, but what Peter is saying is the overall quality of her life is to be exampled. It it serves as a model because of how she interacted with Abraham. Side note, really quick. It is important to note that the Genesis account in three different places records where Abraham submitted to Sarah. On one of those occasions, in Genesis 21, verse 12, God Himself commanded Abraham to obey the voice of Sarah. Just trying to keep this balance, counterbalance. The women in Scripture, I want us to capture this, were confident and brave. Eve, who had to leave the Garden of Eden, grieve the death of her son and carry a hurt probably the rest of her life because of the murderous actions of her oldest son. Jochebed, the mother of Moses, who kept him alive, set him in a basket among the reeds simply to preserve his life. Hagar, who responded in faith to God despite difficult circumstances. When Adam tried to produce his own heir, Sarah, Abraham's wife, who traveled with Abraham and followed him in uncertain, unpleasant, and often dangerous circumstances. And he even had very powerful men attracted to her. And Abraham says, well, she's my sister. Ruth, whose husband died before she had a child. But it was her spirit and her character that attracted Boaz to her. 
Esther, whose courage and wisdom helped preserve the Jewish people. Mary, the mother of Jesus, who submitted to God's will with an attitude and a spirit of reverence, obedience, and trust, knowing the shame that would surround her the rest of her earthly days. The point is this. The characteristics of bravery, courage, and confidence do not run cross-grain to reverence, purity, gentleness, and peace. It's not saying that women have to be pushed off into a corner, hidden and forgotten. This is simply addressing the relationship between a husband and a wife. In verse 6, chapter 3, You are Sarah's daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Let me read one example out of Genesis 20 where that's the case for Sarah. So this is what you're exampling. So, Abraham lies. Well, half, half truth. Because she was half sister. But he says that in order to avoid consequences. He says that because at that point he is not trusting God to protect them. And God comes to Abimelech in a dream by night and says to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken. For she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord... Will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to Abimelech in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife. Who protected Sarah? God did. Whom did Sarah trust? I really believe she was looking to God to protect her in these dangerous situations. So when it goes up, you are Sarah's daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. There is something empowering and very strong about a woman who fears the Lord and obeys him, even if she finds herself in the difficult situation of being married to an unbelieving husband. Now, look at the instructions to Christian husbands. 1 Peter 3, verse 7. Likewise, okay, thinking that back to chapter 2, where you keep your conduct honorable before the Gentiles, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Do you know the basis of the husband's leadership is not control or dominance, but understanding and honor? Peter Davids uh, writes, the expression showing honor, which appears only here in the New Testament, is a common classical expression which means honoring a person verbally rather than demeaning them, but also indicates deeds that show that the person is honored a proper respect and deference to the person. Now, quick, quick snapshot of how women were treated during this time period, which is not unlike many places in the world today. The roles of women in the Greek world were often explained in domineering terms that left women being objectified. Apollodorus, in his oration against Niera, written in 340 B.C., 
going to give you a give you a glimpse into the mindset of the culture towards women. He says, quote, in the Greek world, we have mistresses and courtesans, courtesans for pleasure, concubines and prostitutes for the daily service of our bodies and wives to bear us legitimate children and to be faithful guardians of our households. And early writers actually encouraged husbands to have these relationships and keep them from their wives so that they would remain stable. That is the view of this early culture and many cultures today against women. Peter is telling his Christian brothers to think of their wives in a completely, radically different way than the culture. This is actually very empowering. So the accusation that the church belittles women and marginalizes women and suppresses them is true in some respect. But the fact is true biblical Christianity frees and empowers and gives women the integrity that God wants them to have. First Peter 3, 7, Peter makes the point that women are weaker than men. What, is, what does he mean there? There really are three, three sort of ideas connected to this. Uh, women had considerably less privileges and rights than men in society. So where, where, where the man could go and appeal to a societal authority, she really could not. He's the one that sat at the gates. She did not. They were usually physically weaker than men. Usually. They were also more emotional, which is not a weakness in the sense that we think weakness, but it's a weakness in the sense that a man who wants to exploit a woman can take advantage of her emotional makeup. And Peter wants husbands to acknowledge the more vulnerable situation of their wives, their vessels, so that they would take care not to exploit them. So Colossians 3.19 says this, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Right? There's that respect and that gentle care of treating your wife carefully. And isn't it that people that have grown up into a position of authority, like men, even in our culture, and are given privilege that we're not fully aware of the disadvantages that women in our culture face. We can become insensitive to that. So what Peter is doing, he is calling us to live with them in an understanding way. Understand who they are. Take time to know their heart rhythms, their life rhythms, their struggles, and honor them. And then he's going to say, because they are heirs with you of the grace of life. So in conclusion, notice the trajectory of the kingdom. When Peter goes to address the household, the trajectory of the kingdom of God is away from domination and toward honor. Away from subjugation and towards sensitivity. Away from harshness and toward gentleness. And then he ends with this odd statement, but important so that your prayers may not be hindered. What is God saying here? God is saying it is so important to him in how a husband treats his wife that if he does not align with what God says, 
I'm going to pull away the relational aspect of answering his prayers. And I wonder if some of us this morning haven't sensed that hollowness in our own spiritual life, not because we haven't tried to pray or haven't approached God with reverence, but because there is a breakdown in the home between you and your wife. And God has pulled back from you so that you would draw near to Him and obey His Word on this particular point. God protects the wife's honor by disrupting the husband's prayer life. Now, if you're a man and you're not praying anyway, that's a problem, but you're not going to notice it. But it's also going to let me have a snapshot into your heart that if you're not already a prayerful man, you're probably not treating your wife the way you should either. The Christ-like disposition of servanthood and submission can and should manifest itself in every relationship, especially between husbands and wives. In that disposition, perhaps even more than our words, our spirit has the power to persuade others who might not have otherwise believed in Jesus Christ. So, what has God just laid before us this morning? The gospel changes everything. The gospel changes every relationship. But where it's really going to be seen is not Sunday morning when we're all dressed up and sitting quietly together. It's going to be seen Tuesday afternoon when husband and wife are tired or they have competing agendas and the gospel is going to be most evidently seen or unseen in the home. So, wives, subject yourself to your husbands. And husbands, Live with them in an understanding way, honoring your wife. Why? Because this connects directly into the larger mission of God where you have a watching world looking in and saying, oh, the gospel really is amazing. It really is transforming. But if we just look like any other unbelieving people scampering about, having the same values as the world, the gospel is hidden from their eyes. Husbands, I'm going to put the primary responsibility on you. Ephesians 5 calls you the head of the home, the head of the wife. In almost, in almost every, almost every relational breakdown within the home, I'm going to place that responsibility on men. Because you are either leading well or you are not leading well. But you do lead, you're the leader. You're leading well and godly, or you're not. 